You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for 3CR Breakfast, and uh, we're going to have a rollicking time today because, of course, we've just had the federal budget and uh, we've been innovated and innovated by the Prime Minister's uh, maintenance that uh, renters should all just buy a home and stop complaining. And uh, he's also thrown some crumbs to the poor uh, while giving uh, lashings of money to the rich. Um, And we're going to have a chat with... uh, Arini from uh, the uh, Renters and Housing Union, who have got lots to say about um, the wonderful uh, uh, leader of the country and his budget leading into the next federal election. We're going to have a chat with Don Sutherland, who's going to be looking at the uh, uh, annual wage review, where the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, have put forward the notion that there should be a 5% pay rise. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about some general stuff about uh, what's on offer between the two major parties leading into the next election, if only if only the Liberal Feds would actually call the election instead of using public funds uh, and passing policies that nobody's very happy with before hopefully they kick, get kicked out. It's always been my policy that uh, you should never let any of these people get rusted onto their seats. Muddy the waters, I say. Muddy the waters before they are able to get their slimy fingers on too much of the uh, structural uh, processes in the country. And uh, that's what's been going on. But anyway, before we do that, we're going to uh, hear from uh, Gabrielle Shipton. Gabrielle is uh, Gab Shipton is uh, Julian Assange's brother, and uh, you may have heard that uh, Julian Assange's case for extradition to the U.S. is now in the hands of the political masters of the English state, um, and. Uh, uh, there's a, a film that's been made uh, by, uh, it's called I- Ithaca and um, it is opening in cinemas very soon, Ithaca. Uh, it is a collaboration between uh, members of uh, Julian's family and uh, supporters who have created a film that uh, follows the uh, uh, fight to raise continuous awareness of what's actually happening in terms of Julian's case by 
uh, John Chifton, his father, who has uh, been um, uh, steadfastly uh, um, raising the case of uh, Julian in the media, uh, as well as uh, assisted by, of course, uh, Julian's uh, now wife, uh, Stella. And this is an absolutely fascinating film, uh, Ithaca, uh, on a whole lot of levels. Uh, anyway, I got to speak to um, Gab, who is one of the uh, people involved in the making of the film, and about it. Uh, but before we go into that chat, uh, a few messages from the heartland of the good guys. CoHealth is a not-for-profit community health organisation providing health and support services in Melbourne. In late 2021, CoHealth facilitated a workshop for women from diverse cultural backgrounds on effective communication skills for social and professional settings. Positive outcomes for workshop participants were collaborative discussions in safe spaces and onward access to support services. To learn more about our services and programs, visit cohealth.org.au. Cohealth is a 3CR supporter. Do you love Channel 31? Do you have a favourite program you just can't miss? Or even a favourite Channel 31 personality? If you love your local community TV station, well... There is a way you can help. Head along to c31.org.au and click the big old donate button. Your contribution to your local station will help to keep us on the air. Making more of the quality TV you know and love. Plus, you'll help to make sure our team can continue to provide access, training and education behind the scenes to hundreds of young Victorians. That's c31.org.au. And click on the big donate button. Thank you. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. And as I said, I threatened we're going to have a, a chat with Gabrielle Shipton uh, about Ithaca. Uh, great film. Should put it on your uh, calendar. Okay, thanks for talking to me. Um, it's a very moving film, I'll have to say. Um, uh, I looked up what, uh, it, it, how do you say it? It's Athaka, is it? Ithaca. Oh, Ithaca. Yeah, Ithaca. And um, it's, uh, can you talk to me about how this film came about? I mean, it's quite obvious that it's part of uh, Julian's uh, journey, but um, it's obviously part of uh, the strategy to ensure that people understand what's actually going on. Yes, so uh, back in 2019, uh, I went to, uh, in, in April of 2019, Julian was taken from the Ecuadorian embassy and he was taken to the uh, to Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison uh, just outside of London. Uh, I went to see him at the prison, uh, I think it was August or maybe a little bit earlier that year, and he was on, um, he was on suicide watch. He was being kept. Uh, in the health wing in the prison, which is not like uh, it's not like they bring you um, cups of tea and biscuits 
in a hospital bed. It is the health wing. The prisoners call it the hell wing um, because it has the most, uh, you know, it's where they, there's insane people there, uh, people who are terminally ill. Um, there was, you know, one man who had no arms and legs, things like that. It's very, very, um, it's very grim. And Julian was in the health wing uh, in his cell 23 hours a day, which, you know, essentially a solitary confinement there. And I went to see him uh, at the prison and, and I was there with my father and John Pilger. And we left that day. Um, and, and that day I left, I, I felt that it, that would, might be the last time that I ever see him again. Uh, I'd never sort of seen him like that over the years. Uh, you know, when I'd been visited in like either under house arrest or in the Ecuadorian embassy, um, I'd never seen him like that. So it was at that point that, uh, you know, I figured that, you know, we had to sort of try and try and get a different side of the story out, you know, and, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a film producer. I usually produce drama, you know, I've never produced a documentary before, but I've produced drama, uh, drama features. And so we sort of, started to think about how how we can how we can tell a side of the story and it was at that time that John was uh, my father John and Julian's dad was traveling around Europe advocating for Julian um, you know coalescing these groups of politicians doing media all over Europe uh, that we sort of thought that he would be the best way in uh, to the story and then so you know, shortly after that, we we got a cameraman to follow, to follow John, and and yeah, we followed John for the next six months. Um, uh, you know, in his travels around Europe, and then uh, then Ben Lawrence, the film's director, came on board, and we sort of launched into the extradition hearing, uh, and that was in August in 2020. The um. It's, it's fascinating because, as you say, uh, this is a film that doesn't have the star in it. Uh, that's right. It's sort of uh, Julian's absence is his presence in a way. Um, and we sort of learn about Julian through his, the people who love him, you know, and, and the people who are closest to him. And, uh, you know, I think it's very sort of, you know, Julian's been taken away from everyone. He's been silenced, right? So, so uh, the people who have become his voice are, are John and Stella, our two, our two, you know, main participants. Um, so they're, you know, they're the ones who are closest to Julian. They're the ones who are advocating for him. Um, so yeah, the whole he's sort of been Julian's been taken from the world and silenced, and so. Uh, we use, we use, yeah, we, we learn about him through the people who love him um, and how they experience Julian's uh, persecution. I mean, it's all very well for us to talk about this as a film because it works as a film incredibly well. Uh, but part of it, but it's because it's such a living subject and um, it's so uh, distressing. I mean, it's distressing to me and I'm not you and I'm not him, you know. So, um, it's interesting to me that uh, people are, it, it describes all the elements that are to do with 
the world that uh, Julian Assange is actually exposed. So there's the private world. So in this film, it, we are stepping into people's privacy um, as well as uh, the issue of him as a citizen of the world being able to actually describe the outrageous nature of the illegality, I would say, of the court case against him. Yes, and and it's and it, and you know what we tried, what we sort of set out to do was you know strike a balance between you know what are the characters in this film, uh, John and Stella, their personal journey, um, you know the how we connect with them as an audience. Uh, but also the bigger the bigger story around uh, Julian's persecution, um, you know, and, and the sort of corruption and yeah, as you say, illegality, and um, you know, this sort of torturous uh, torturous machine that has sort of been set up before our very eyes. So it uh, it's always a balance that I think you know, as Julian's family members, we try and when advocating for him, we try and you know, always there's always the, the personal connection is what gives us uh, this power to speak to people. You know, but but we also have to balance that with uh, telling a different side of the story uh, that that you wouldn't usually um, hear about because so much of so much about uh, uh, so much of the um, the battle is sort of shifting this shifting um, Stella Stella in the film. Um, calls it shifting the criminality. You know, Julian Julian is not a criminal. He exposed the criminals, <laughs> uh, and and so we have to sort of shift the criminality away from Julian that's being put there by the state, and 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 sort of try and shift it on to those who are actually responsible uh, for the corruption or, or war crimes um, and you know malfeasance that that Julian exposed. It's actually really fascinating the power of uh, the personal uh, connection and people who love him standing up for him. This is really, I mean, I know this is a funny little aside, but I remember thinking with my little girl, when my girl was a little girl, how powerful it was and how important it was to have a parent to advocate for your child at school. It never really understood it quite so powerfully as I did in that case. And it's exactly the same as this. Actually having someone say, I'm prepared to stand here and say, this is a good person. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think, I think, you know, it's, it's everyone can sort of understand it, right? Like that it's this sort of uh, powerful emotion that, that we all have to protect our children. Uh, you know, anybody who has a child, even those people who don't can understand it, but, um, to actually feel that, I think you know, as a, as a parent myself, we 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 have all uh, felt that and can understand that um, can understand that emotion. So it's it really is something that uh, this sort of broad uh, broad way of connecting with a broader you know a hope is that we we're able to connect with a broader audience um, through this father fighting for his son. You know, through this sort of basic emotion that. That we all have to to protect our children when they're in trouble. Um, of course, uh, it's 
slightly moved on uh, the issue uh, for Julian personally. We heard that uh, he and Stella married and also that this terrible situation of uh, not being allowed to um, uh, appeal the decision. It's all gone to about extradition. It's all gone to the uh, uh, the legal honcho, a uh, head honcho in England to decide, even though it's been exposed as an entirely political process. That's what's happened now. Yeah, that's right. It's gone. It's at um, uh, it's at the Home Secretary now to sign off on the extradition, and then it will go to the Magistrates Court, and Julian will have another chance to appeal. But uh, you know, the sort of legal battle is. Uh, you know, it can it can go on forever, uh, really, and and the whole time Julian remains in prison. I think you know, this you know, on April 11th it will be the third his third year in 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 Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison, and he's not serving a sentence. He's a remand prisoner. Um, you know, it's really it becomes so stark when you're visiting him, and the other prisoners there they all have a date. You know that they know that you know they're getting out, or or they they can plan for. But Julian, Julian doesn't. Uh, you know, and this thing, this sort of these court cases could go on for, for you know, if it goes to the USA. I mean, to get to the Supreme Court can take up to ten, twelve years. So if you add that on top of of the prison time he's already served, you're looking at, you know, basically, you know, fifteen, twenty years of. of of imprisonment, uh, you know, without being found guilty. So really, what what it is is this veil uh, of this sort of veil of legality that um, allows a certain section of society uh, to switch off and, and 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 say, well, Julian Julian will get justice through the courts, um, you know, believing that the courts um, you know are just. So. The, this his persecution is, is behind this this veil of legality that um, sort of convinces a certain section of society that um, you know Julian will get his fair share, his you know a fair trial, but really uh, it, it's not happening that way. No, it's it's actually quite shocking. Uh, it was so obvious that uh, the uh, information that was put to the court, because I have been following this in fair detail. The, the information that was taken to court uh, was not, their case was not a, an appropriate case. And the fact that Julian hasn't been allowed to actually read or see or confer with his uh, lawyers, it, it makes a mockery of the system that they are pretending is a legal process. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And you get people like back at home, Scott Morrison, said that they can't comment on things that are, you know, just, you know, the, the legal thing has to run its course, and you know uh, it's entirely a political case. Like espionage is a, uh, you know, it's a political charge. So, um, you know, it, it needs a political solution. Essentially, it needs for Scott Morrison to pick up the phone, or the Prime Minister, whether after the election, whether it's Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese, to pick up the phone and, and phone their counterpart in the USA, and, and um, you know, get. Bring Julian home. Basically, use our special, use Australia's special relationship uh, that they have uh, with the US to um, bring Julian home. It's fascinating too that, <coughs> excuse me, it's quite clear. Uh, you point out in the film that uh, Julian Assange actually um, uh, believes in the rule of law. It's quite clear 
And it's quite shocking to have it exposed that our uh, economic and political overlords are actually a lawless bunch of thugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that's a bit of a hot potato, but it is pretty uh, stark. I mean, it's very similar to the uh, way in Australia that uh, the refugees who arrive in boats are just summarily kept in jail for nine years for no reason at all. It's quite bizarre. Yeah, I think that's, you know, Julian created, that's part of the reason, uh, you know, Julian created uh, WikiLeaks because of these power structures that, uh, you know, work in secret, work in secret um, who do things in our name. And, and you know, he saw, uh, you know, using new technologies that he could, um, you know, create a sort of disruption to these, to these power structures. Um, and sort of educate people to make better decisions about their society through, uh, you know, through, um, you know, leaks that were, you know, sort of crowd-sourced in, in terms of their journalism. So uh, I hope this film sort of, you know, follows in that, you know, obviously it's not going to have the same impact that WikiLeaks did, but I, I hope it sort of follows in that in that tradition of... Um, you know, exposing what the what the powerful get up to. Yeah, of course, because WikiLeaks still exists, of course. Um, so therefore, uh, it's uh, still possible for people to uh, get um, information about what's you know uh, you know the good work that he was doing effectively. Yes, all the the whole archive is still online. Um, even all the all the all the um, leaks that Julian, uh, all the publishing that Julian has been charged for at the moment, which is the Iraq war logs, the uh, Afghan war diaries, the cable, the diplomatic cable set, and the Guantanamo Bay detainee files. All all of all of that information uh, still exists online uh, on the WikiLeaks website. Um, so it has not it hasn't been censored. You know, in the, in, the, in the sort of times now where where things are so easily um, yeah erased, uh, WikiLeaks has managed to keep keep everything uh, online and available for you know students, journalists, lawyers, uh, all to draw on uh, to make our societies better. Yeah, it, it's um, interesting in the film. You, it's a very delicate film because. Uh, the people that come to outside, uh, very famous people, in fact, come uh, without any fanfare to show support, in a sense, on the street, um, which is quite telling. Yes, yeah, we have, um, you know, Vivian Westwood, Ai Weiwei, uh, Ai Weiwei came to the court, uh, John Pilger, so all the people who understand what's at stake in this case. Um, uh, you know what, and, and you know what, what's at stake in Julian's persecution, and I, I think you know, Ai Weiwei really sums it up. It's the fight. Um, it's the fight that gives the work meaning. You know, if Julian wasn't, uh, you know, if Julian's work didn't elicit this response from, you know, the most powerful nation on the world, you know, would it would it really would it really be important, or would it would it have an impact? And I think. Um, 
you know, it's the fight around that and around getting Julian out that really gives uh, all the work that has been done uh, meaning. Uh, I agree with Ai Weiwei on that one. Um, why did you, where did you get the title, Ithaca? Who, who came up with it? Because it's, it's obviously a very held, uh, a fond held philosophical perspective. And also, uh, your father is a very philosophical man. Yeah, so when John's on the road, when, you know, when, when things aren't going right and, and um, you know, all seems lost, he, he listens to this a poem by Cavalpy, uh, you know, Ithaca. It's called Ithaca. It's about, um, obviously, it's a home, uh, you know, the Odyssey. Uh, Ithaca is the home of a, uh, is it a Jesus? I think it is. Yeah, it's a Jesus. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I just never yeah, real. Well, I've never seen that written down. I, I I know about it, but now that that you, it's brought up, so I mean the, the definition, the meaning of life, or as he calls it, Ithaca. He notes that as we all try to achieve our goals, it is impa- important not to lose sight of the journey. Yes, that's right, and and that's um, you know, and I think you know, as you know, John is the sort of self-taught builder designer. You know, Stella is a, a lawyer and, and they've sort of been thrust on this, uh, you know, thrust onto the sort of global stage uh, in defending and advocating for Julian. And I think it's sort of a lesson for anyone else who wants to do some advocacy or ac- activism that, you know, it's not about it's not about the destination. It's just about, you know, taking that first step, like launching yourself on that journey. Uh, and I think... You know, that's what we tried to say, you know, with the title. It's not, it's really about the journey and not the, the destination. I heard someone say, someone say, oh, is, is Australia Ithaca? You know, is Australia, um, is Australia Julian's Ithaca? Which I thought was a sort of nice interpretation as well. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, well, he might like um, Australia to stand up and fight back. Yeah, that would be, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, what are you hoping from the film? Well, we we are going. We'll you know we'll go ahead with a theatrical release in Australia uh, on the twenty first of April, which will be in the lead up to the election. We've got quite a a large impact campaign planned. Um, so you know, really sort of raise Julian's issue in 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 the lead up to the Australian election, um, and and hopefully. You know, make it, you know, force people to take a political position uh, one way or another uh, in in the lead up to the Australian election. Um, so that's the sort of, you know, that's our sort of plan is to sort of use it to to bring Julian home, really. Um, it, it's kind of interesting to me that um, in a lot of ways this story, like I was going back to when I was talking about that idea of uh, standing up for your child at school, uh, it really does tap straight into uh, the psychological uh, uh, underbelly of Australia or maybe even the convict past element of uh, never being a tall poppy, not putting your head above the parapet, uh, reading the wind, uh, who's got the power and when when is it important to uh, sit on your hands even though you know there's a... a um, unfairness afoot. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, sort of. Um, I think, yeah. Uh, I th- yeah, I sort of do. I mean, you know, I think, you know, it's, Julian is the ultimate underdog, though, right? And, and Australia's yeah. always love an underdog story, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's elements of that. And, and also, I think, you know, I feel like we as Australians have this sort of, um, you know, that sort of disrespect for authority <laughs> a little bit. You know, maybe it is the convict path, but, you know, we sort of, uh, you know, very suspicious. Uh, I think we're very suspicious naturally around, you know, uh, you know, around authority, which is, um, I think, why we sort of found, you know, Australia is really the base for this film. You know, we, we've gotten a lot of support here and, and, and it wouldn't have been possible without um, people coming on board and, and, backing, and backing this project from Australia. It's very much an Australian film in that way and oh, I don't think we could have made it yeah I don't think we could have made it any other way uh, and, and and that was very heartening to me that you know Australia uh, and the people here really really support Julian's cause and and you know gave us gave us the sort of backing to make to make this project there's a really lot at stake I mean it's not just him that's at stake which is but is it that's at the core of the film it's not to be forgotten uh, but there's so many other things at stake over this uh, issue. Yes, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, you know, freedom of the press is is a major, major issue these days, and this sort of espionage prosecution, uh, the extraterritorial nature of, um, you know, the, the espionage prosecution against Julian, where. Where the USA is able to reach in, reach in, literally reach in anywhere and take yeah. a journalist and a publisher and uh, prosecute them under their under under US law. So, um, yeah, what just is, I guess, insane. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, and I think also it's you know very much uh, you know what we can expect as Australians if if, if we do get into trouble with. You know, our big ally. Uh, you know, as Australian citizens, we sort of don't expect any help if if you uh, become a target of uh, the USA. It's very much a clear message to to any Australian. But anyway, good work. You've done a great job. I'm really, um, I was really impressed with what you did. Um, I was really impressed with people being so close to the story and then coming up with a cogent. Uh, film, and then I found that you were you're, you're responsible for uh, Emu Runner, right? Yes, I was part of the producing team on that one. Yeah, yeah, which is a lovely film, and uh, yeah, sweet. yeah, yeah, it's a very sweet film. And um, it, it, I just thought the editing process it must have been a really fascinating affair. Yes, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, uh, we had Karen Johnson, who's a, uh, she's a, a fabulous. Um, documentary editor. Uh, very lucky to have her on board, and she was able to pull pull it pull it all together because we just we had so much uh, observational footage um, that she had to sort of wade through and and um, you know pull pull a story out of basically. And she used those great interviews that Ben did with John. I think Ben did about thirteen hours of interview with John mm. uh, in the kitchen there. Um, yeah. And that sort of formed the backbone, really, 
uh, of the film. Um, so yeah, it was it was a long process. It was a bit probably over six months of editing. Yeah, yeah, and also the um, expressiveness of Stella. What a, what a Stella person Stella is. Oh, she's amazing. She's so she's incredible. Yeah, yeah. incredible she's person. She's just has gotten. Um, yeah, it's amazing to to see her. You know, just become this awesome advocate for Julian. Yeah, it's a lovely put together. I mean, those interviews, uh, the environments that they're in is really are really interesting, really well put, uh, very tasty for a, uh, in terms of storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, it's a bit rude because it, filmically it works. The film is really good. Yes. Film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I found it very. Uh, it was, it's almost like being caught in an undertow, a very long. Um, a slow motion undertow. This film. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, harrowing. Yeah, harrowing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you for giving me time. No worries. Thanks, Eddie. But I lost all of them And I've been searching in the night And I've been searching in the rain I tried to find them But they disappeared They walked away They dressed in black They left my side And all I say is that I wasted time When I look for them For now I know that things gone past Are never to be found again No, never, never again I had nine lives But lost all of them Hmm
Hello, this is Dan Salton, and you're listening to 3CR Blackfellow Radio, Melbourne. And you're back with Annie on 3TR Breakfast. And uh, as promised, we've got Irini Tolitas uh, from uh, uh, the Renters and uh, Housing Union. G'day. How are you, Irini? Hey, Annie. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, good. And um, it's great to talk to you because uh, the budget was uh, such a frightful affair and uh, apparently renters should just go and buy a home. Yeah, amazingly, Scott Morrison's come out with guns blazing, um, basically telling us exactly what we knew he felt about us, um, <laughs> which, you know, unsurprising, I guess, to, to most of us, um, and and a really, really massive disregard for everything <laughs> that we experience as people in low income, um, particularly those of us who know that it's going to be on average, more than a million dollars now to, to buy a home. So, yeah, well, it was quite it, appalling. It, it, it's, it's fascinating because um, the uh, Treasurer has maintained that he's uh, got the budget is a realistic um, approach to uh, the threats to Australian society. Um, and you, you uh, represent people who are uh, renters and... Uh, uh, are in um, a low-income brackets. But, you know, uh, talking to people who have two, you know, are in partnerships with two incomes, full-time incomes, they can't buy homes. So who's mm. who's being unrealistic? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think for, for, that, for, for the people who we represent as renters, um, whether you're low-income or not, we've got, more than third, more than a third of the population um, in Australia are renting, and that number is growing every year because it is completely unaffordable to buy a house, and that's still growing as well. So um, it's kind of becoming more and more of a situation of um, the haves and have not have not uh, when it comes to housing, and the idea that we could actually have a stable and secure place of our own that we own is, is just such a pipe dream to, to most of us, regardless of our income stream. And it's interesting that Frydenberg came out so strongly about what the country needs in terms of its safety. Um, and when we spoke to this as a response to that budget, that it's not um, defence weaponry that we actually need to spend money on in terms of protecting each other um, in this country, it's it's housing. It's like the basic sort of welfare that is required, the healthcare systems that are required um, in order to to stop people going into homelessness um, and to actually keep each other safe. Um, and and we saw none of that in the budget that they that they announced. They repeat things and uh, take it for granted that everybody will believe what they say basically, isn't it? Because the lived mm. experience of people is just not... I mean, uh, in precarious work, um, uh, high rents, uh, high uh, prices for food even, uh, it's it, mm. uh, services being undermined by the fact that they're being outsourced to private enterprise uh, when they actually should have a, a not-for-profit focus. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and also we're seeing the 
unregulation or the attempt to destroy regulation around um, responsible lending as well. So at the moment, I've, I've been seeing a lot more buy now, pay later schemes coming through, um, which is a really awful predatory um, form of basically debt chattelry. Um, and we're seeing that that's, that's being advertised more and more for things like, you know, bread and milk and petrol. Oh, God. Um, so the idea that you would go into debt because you can't afford to buy bread and milk uh, and that that debt stays around and grows is a real concern that they are absolutely doing nothing about. If anything, they're deregulating it further and that is now happening to people in rent also. So you can actually do um, a buy now, pay later scheme for your rent, um, probably using an app like Colmeo or third-party payment apps where you are automatically subscribed to be um, have to have money taken out of your bank account automatically regardless of whether it's there or not and being in debt. What a disgraceful uh, government! What a disgraceful government! I mean, mm. the uh, I mean, it's ideological their whole approach, the whole idea that they're governing for the entire population and that we're going to have a bright future is just such outrageous. I mean, uh, what what would you say about the um, a little t- tax cuts and the uh, one off payments? Oh, it's completely patronising and offensive that they've just thrown out breadcrumbs to us and expected us to come running. Um, I mean, even even the the amount of payment that they've offered is still scaled um, to how much money you already have. So <laughs> the idea that like they can't even get that one right um, is pretty amazing. It's an obviously transparent bribe, but to to think that even that means that the rich will get richer in that payment and the poor will continue to get poorer is just yeah pretty laughable and. And everyone, I think everyone absolutely knows that getting $420 is absolutely not going to cover the rent that month um, and absolutely not going to win them another chance. Oh, it's extraordinary. But the thing that really is uh, an indicator of the uh, um, steel heart of this particular government is that they've given $2 billion to the National Housing Finance and Investment Corp, a newly established corporation headed by real estate and property developers. Mm. That's yeah, amazing. That's their, that was their commitment to the housing spend, actually, in its entirety, as far as I could tell. Um, and that company, that, sorry, that, that corporation um, is headed by people who have made squillions out of uh, student accommodation, property development, um, and community housing—sorry, uh, private private housing models—that um, is, yeah, incredibly concerning. Because if you actually go and look them up and read up about what they're providing and what their plan is, it's almost all to do with home ownership, um, and you know, making sure that people can buy their first home or their second home, and also developing private property. So it's really a pretty massive slap in the face um, that that's some of his mates that he's just going to go and give $2 billion to... Um, Real estate and, agents yeah, and developers. Yeah, and it means absolutely nothing to, to everyday people who just, yeah... <laughs> we, we, you, know, really. you know, this is comparative to the slashing of uh, public funds to public education that was in the budget, which is now being handed over to private schools. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's being absolutely um, blatant about it, I think. Yeah, absolutely blatant. I mean, people really need to uh, um, realise that this is these uh, these policies will di- directly undermine the social uh, fabric of this country. I mean, and the people that are going to be feeling it uh, are, um, well, me and you. <laughs> mm. Yep, totally, yeah. And I, I do also worry that, um, you know, the conversation, the, the response from the Labor Party didn't necessarily respond explicitly to that housing um Question and, and I know that it's probably only a two-day cycle of news when Morrison says just buy a house, but nonetheless, um, I, I really hope to see some some larger responses from the Labor government, uh, Labor Party about about what they intend to do with housing because there does need to be more builds um, and whether it's social or community or uh, public. We've taken a very firm position that we need to see public housing built because it is the most stable, it is the most secure, it is the lowest rent, um, and it's been tested and proved to have worked for hundreds of communities across the country. Um, But we haven't seen a commitment to public housing uh, just yet, at least, from the Labor Party, and we really, really hope to see that in the coming coming months. Because what you're... um uh, your union is pointing out is that uh, housing uh, and these issues uh, intersect to a whole range of uh, uh, insecurities within the country. And, uh, for example, the claims put out by the Liberal federal government, I mean, absolutely full of holes, but that they're supporting women economically through this budget falls down completely when it comes to the issue of housing, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. And and the simple response to give women better um, safety nets is to actually just make more housing. Like, I know that sounds ridiculous and completely separate. Simple, but too simple, man. Yeah, anyone that knows what it's like to go through domestic violence or... Um, you know, insecure work enough to mean that you don't know when you're, like, if you're going to make rent that month, knows that having secure and stable and affordable housing is going to help um, come through those issues because so many of the cases of domestic violence we see um, really do stem at being stuck in, in a controlling environment that they have they, they can't leave because they can't afford a new place. Um, so, yeah, I think actually committing to spending on public housing would be a really, really good and simple way to address that issue immediately. What's uh, How can people get in contact with your uh, union so that uh, if they need support? So you can reach out to us at rahu.org.au forward slash join to become a member. And um, as soon as you sign up, one of our delegates will get in touch with you and uh, if you've got any rental issues um, at all, like of any kind, we can absolutely direct that straight through to our support team. Um, we cover members who are in public, community or private housing, and um, we have membership across 
Victoria and in parts of Australia more more broadly. Um, so yeah, basically renters and housing union. So rahu.org.au forward slash join, and we can get in touch with you that way. Thanks for talking to us this morning. No worries. Cheers, Annie. Thanks so much for having me on. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative.
weak solidarity Bricky team listener when true blue Aussie declared it would show it is not being hypocritical in this good guys bad guys world by inviting the leaders of Sudan the Palestinian non-land non-people Western Sahara those fleeing the Myanmar military and others suffering from good guy lovers of liberty freedom and democracy bullies to address Parliament big supremo scuttled them more lash son aka scummo again declaring true blue Aussie would always stand up to bullies as determined by our very 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 close friend the US of the UN of the US of the world the US of hates bullies scummo stated the obvious oh and there was the cost of living or sorry the budget well, we've covered that. No, seriously, we have to commend the government for being aware that the cost of living is inflating rapidly and addressing the cost of living because it does recognise people are concerned about the cost of living, which impacts on the cost of living. And so the cost of living budget does something about the cost of living by handing the poorest of the poor a $4.80 a week handout for the next 12 months. Workers an extraordinarily generous vote winning $8.07 a week, predicting there'll be lots of jobs for those workers, but sadly, not much in the wages department. Oh, well, no, no, that's unfair. Big economic guru Josh Friedem Iceberg says, thanks to the government's responsible policies, wages will increase uh, after the election. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony Albing Uzi, said he would increase wages by increasing productivity, taking on the very problem caring employers have pointed out time and again, ad infinitum really, is the cause of the slow wages growth that so worries them. Although Anthony, we put to Anthony, the actual figures show productivity has been increasing, has been healthy, and the caring business class profits and boardroom and CEO remunerations are soaring. The, the only part of the equation not increasing, and indeed decreasing, is wages. Uh, this shows as responsible caring employers and their representatives, like industry profit groups in us will cost the workers have pointed out, productivity is still not at a level at which workers can be rewarded. And Innes is a man who knows what he's talking about. Uh, yes, yes, we've noticed that. Which shows, sadly, because everyone knows I am a lifelong supporter of working people, that workers only have themselves to blame for stagnant wages. And a, and a socialist government, which I lead, will ensure they pull their fingers out. And you've said you'll govern for the big end of town. Exactly. Obviously in order to assist working families. So either way, it seems wages are certain to increase after the election. Bad luck, Anthony, but with 480 a week to whoop it up on, Scummo and Josh have got my vote. It has spoke for caring employers in attacking the outrageous ACTU submission for a 5% pay rise for the lowest paid of the lowest paid, citing the massive $4.80 and $8.07 bribe, or sorry, responsible handout, as showing workers have already had an increase and that must be taken into account in assessing the minimum wage case. 
These payments will provide people with significant relief from the uplift in inflation and should counter large wage claims, he says. No embellishment, listener. They would equate to a substantial percentage of a wage rise, indicating Innes and the team may just go for a slightly lower figure than the ACTU's economy crippling 5%, like, say, a responsible minus. After all, that substantial percentage of 807 a week equates to a massive 20 cents an hour. That must be taken into account. Absolutely sensible and responsible attitude from Innes, who has for so long worried day and night about slow wages growth. And what thanks does he get? That Sally McManus, representing evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers, said, <laughs> how's this for a load of rubbish, said, suggesting that the one in four workers who rely on the minimum wage case for pay rises should be punished because of the election bribes is outrageous. Outrageous. What's outrageous is that anyone could think the $4.80 and $8.07 were election bribes when we know they represent Scummo and Josh's concern for all of us facing cost of living increases. And why shouldn't the government handout be returned as private profit for the caring employers? Well, it will anyway, but why not have a double dip? Get it as people spend it and use it to ensure they have less to spend. It's all so sensible and logical. Not sensible and logical, an even greater threat to workers whom caring employers so care about, given voice this week by one of Innes' close colleagues, Steve, not the workers' friend of the Troubler Aussie Mines and Metals Profits Association, who told the Brisbane Club, whatever that is, presumably some working class organisation, that the time for industrial relations reform is now. The government has dropped the ball. Afraid, Steve made an important point, of evil union and socialist attacks. Yet a proposal by the socialists and evil unions, as a prime example, that labour hire workers receive the same pay as direct employees is, quote, a brick wall in front of free market competition principles. We must have the free market competition principles, freedom to employ the workers we so care about on the best possible terms. And they must have the freedom under free market competition principles to accept working for us for lower wages and conditions. Freedom of choice. And Steve was also concerned that unions, evil, evil unions, would push for bargaining fees to pay for non-union members covered by union agreements. This atrocious policy, Steve told his audience, which presumably nodded knowingly, abrading the God-given right of workers not to join a union. And Steve said, Scummo and the team must come up with policies to counter the socialist direct quote, terrible ideas formulated around myths, gross exaggerations and scare campaigns. Steve also went to the number of high-profile caring employers sprung for underpaying workers millions, scathingly critical of these caring employers. I hear you say, well, well no, proof that we must scrap the award system. If there were no awards, they wouldn't be underpaying them. He made another strong point got a feeling Steve, too, won't be supporting that 5% wage increase for the lowest of low paid. While workers can wait, 
we've been waiting for centuries when we think about it or even when we don't think about it. So what's a few weeks more? Caring employers can't wait, especially the construction giants who deliver all the infrastructure that keeps our society in infrastructure, whether we need it or not, who are suffering from soaring prices of materials. Imagine how much higher prices would be soaring if the price of labour were also to rise, showing how responsible it is that caring employers and Scummo and Josh ensure the price of labour does not soar. Well, not until after the election. Anyway, material costs are soaring and the construction industry has come up with this brilliant and imaginative idea. The public purse should meet the costs of cost blowouts. Uh, but but what about market forces, laissez-faire, the principle Steve was talking about? For God's sake, we're asking the government to guarantee the market works the way it should, which shows yet again how naive we are when it comes to matters of the delicate flower that is the economy, the greatest little economic order of them all. Uh, so when your costs increase, the government should meet those extra costs, we dug an even deeper hole in our naivety and ignorance. Therefore, as the price of resources, for instance, also soars, and the great resource giants make mega profits, how much of those windfall profits should they give back to the government? The construction spokesperson didn't even think that nonsense worth a reply. Oh, and also contributing to market forces laissez-faire, caring employers also told the government the budget must extend the public purse, meeting the costs of training workers and apprentices and their wages. And Scummo and Josh oblige because they know this helps market forces and laissez-faire, and market forces and laissez-faire are good for all of us, even if that thoughtful contribution to the caring employers costs a, a touch more than, say, $4.80 a week. Santos us the profits, despite its commitment to addressing climate change, if there is such a thing, by promising not to export the oil and gas for which it continues to explore and extract to countries that are not committed to addressing climate change, if there is, like Santos us is committed. Uh, but, we asked Supremo Kevin Gall bigger than, uh, wouldn't you be doing a little more for the climate, showing your undoubted commitment if you didn't export oil and gas at all to anybody, anywhere, just leave it in the ground? No, we certainly could not. There, there's no profit on a live planet. Look, those who understand these matters, who, who care about the environment like we do, know oil and gas are an integral part of Santos as the prophet's role in addressing climate change, if there is. The good news is that policy on the frying of the planet is determined by socially concerned people like Kevin and the caring corporations they represent. I never thought I would ever ever agree with anything that emerges from the mouth and mind of caring business class Senator Con shit on the poor for Yerevante Wells. But this week, spot on. I agree with every word. And what a tragic loss for parliamentary democracy, the retirement bracket forced of socialist Kim Il-Kar who, after 30 years putting his obviously deep commitment to political rotation into action, has suddenly realised he has a family.
Nothing to do with his political family dumping him. As Kim Il said, he would have preferred to keep his bum on the plush seat so he could continue to bring us all the Socialist Party's commitment to fairness. And given in the 30 years he has devoted his every second to the working class, fairness has gone backwards big time, almost exponential deceleration, we can but imagine what another six years of Kim Il devotion would have underachieved. His big thing, perhaps because of his name, was to hand the world's biggest car makers and manufacturing caring employers generally trillions in public funds, a cornucopia of corporate welfare, showing that if he couldn't do anything about socialism for the workers, he could do plenty about socialism for the filthy rich. As a final tribute, I guess we now have to feel sorry for his family. And finally, the what a brilliant idea and responsible use of our money, award to Scummo Josh and the team for their solution to their concern over an evil Chinese company running the port of Darwin. Spend trillions to build another port of Darwin for US of protecting the good guys' train killers. Scummo Josh and the team, your what a brilliant idea and responsible use of our money award is on its way. Although, here's a silly, silly thought. Mightn't it have been a touch cheaper to keep our ports in public hands in the first place? Told you it was silly. Good morning. Yeah, and you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. And we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? Well, once again, Annie, uh, I just wonder how I'm going to top that. I know. Um, He was really uh, blazing, wasn't he? I love it. uh, Frying the planet policy. (laughs) It was wonderful. And uh, this time, though, I'm coming to you, instead of from Nam, I'm coming to you from Kanamalika country. Hey, and, uh, you've moved. I, yes, I've moved. And so I start by acknowledging the people who have been the custodians of uh, this land and the very able ones of this land and still struggling to be so. Um, the people, uh, the leaders of the Lever Mahona and the Pangamini people. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and still struggling for the protection of their country and of their own lives. Beautiful country. Uh, yeah, yes, I'm just beginning to learn about it. And, uh, look, uh, hopefully, more opportunities are going to emerge in the next few weeks. Um, yeah, yeah, we're so we're we're com- we're coming to talk about something less uh, savoury than the beautiful country you're in. Uh, we're yeah. we're going to talk a little bit about budget. Uh, yes, well, I think um, the uh, the best way to tackle any discussion about the budget is not so much to, you know, pick out all any specific details that many other very good commentaries have latched upon. Um, there, there might be one about public education that we'll come back to because I think we need to emphasise just how appalling this budget really is with that particular example. But I'm, what I'm interested in is... Uh, where and I think we have to pay attention to where the budget is uh, relative to the overall standard of living and what's going to happen during the period when the official election gets underway. We are going to have a titanic struggle over how the standard of living for 90% of Australians is going to be formed in the next few years. And that struggle is going to be condensed into the election period. At the present time, the standard of living is dominated by three major things. Firstly, what's, ha- what's happening to 
transition from a carbon-dominated capitalist economy to some sort of transitional form that is both democratic and decarbonises. In other words, to start the process of slowing uh, global temperature rises and the consequences that go with that. Or frying the planet. So that's about the quality of life. Standard living is about the quality of life. Then there's the economic standard living. And the budget is one of the two really big events of the year that uh, we could probably say three, but when you take into account what the Reserve Bank gets up to, but uh, it is one of the principal events of the year that determine the standard of living to one degree or another. In other words, it sets the level of the social wage. That which is returned to the 90% flowing from the taxes that they have contributed, that which is returned to them but has a social value to them. And here we are talking about everything from public health, public transport, we're talking about dental care, early childcare, public education, and so on. Uh, however, coinciding with this period, there is also the annual wage review. And the annual wage review is now underway and has taken another decisive step in its bureaucratised and disempowering broken rule process. With this week, yesterday, was the deadline for the first submission was from interested parties, as they're called, uh, about what whether there should be an increase in the national minimum wage and the minimum rate in awards, when that increase should occur and to whom it should apply. And so we have the submissions in. Perhaps uh, I'll just go through some of the submissions and then talk... Well, well, we know that the ACTU has put forward 5% increase across the board. Yeah, the ACTU uh, submission or claim, whatever you want to call it, uh, I'm old school and like to still talk about it as a claim because that's how we should talk about it, 5%. Um, The Australian Industry Group uh, has proposed that uh, 2% is enough for low-income people. Which is below the inflation rate. Uh, yes, it's below the current inflation rate quite significantly. And so it's a pay cut. It's a pay cut. Um, the Restaurant and Catering Industry Association, for all of those uh, of you, your listeners who are hospital workers... Or, yeah, yeah. What are they uh, saying? Naught uh, or minus? supposing there should be nothing. Yeah, yeah, naught. Zero. Zero. Yeah. Um, and uh, the... Uh, Two governments have put in submissions. The Victorian government is proposing an increase of 3.5%. Oh, that's interesting. uh, And the West Australian government has said it should be meaningful. Meaningful. Yes. So the answer is meaningful. And um, uh, uh, there are various others. There there are individuals. One of the individuals, uh, one of the two individuals of the 13 submissions altogether is Adam Bant, who makes the submission as an individual but on behalf of the Greens. And he says there should be, the increase should take the minimum wage to 60% of the median wage. Ah. 
Mm. Now, that is ACTU policy. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm. All right. Now, uh, we can come back in a future discussion about what that what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but 5% mm. the air, but in all, for all practical purposes, in the struggle, if I can use that phrase, uh, is going to be for somewhere between naught and 5%. And at this case, at this stage, uh, without going into all the detail of the submission... Oh, uh, before, you, before you do that, uh, one interesting point I'd like to make is that, generally speaking, uh, previous to this year, whenever there's been an announcement by the ACTU about an um, uh, increase in the minimum wage... Most of the mainstream newspapers have headlines which, I mean, they don't even need to uh, uh, create them each year. They might as well just uh, do it as a historical thing because they always say predictably, um, we're all going to be ruined. You know, it's a, it's yeah. the end of the world as we know it, right, because yeah. they're asking for an increase in wages. But this year it's been quite muted and suppressed. Well, so far it has, and uh, it is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. So the standard of living has shaped through the social wage captured in the budget and the industrial wage is a central focus. And regrettably, for reasons that I think need some discussion at some time, I would say that the annual wage review is the most misunderstood, underrated and undervalued economic event within our own labour movement by the core of activists that drive the activities of our unions, each one, and also our movement generally. Why do you say that? Because in every discussion I've had with especially young and emerging, the core activists who drive a lot of activity and do wonderful stuff, they just, when you discuss the annual wage review with them, it, the response is dominated with a blank look. Why is it so important? It's so important because it sets, it, 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 it determines whether those on the lowest incomes, not those just at the minimum rate, so the minimum rate at the moment is, if I remember correctly, $20.33 per hour, and that's the benchmark rate to define wage there. Anything below that, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're a junior or something like that, a junior employee, um, anything below that is wage theft. And that's seven hundred and seventy-two dollars sixty a week. So the annual wage review will say whether that gets increased, but also it sets the rate, the minimum rates for every type of worker or classification of worker in every industrial award. So shop, workers in the retail industry, workers in the mining industry, from one extreme to another, each of those, all of those workers, their minimum standards are defined in their industrial award, whatever it is, and that includes the minimum rates for the type of work that they do. So yeah. a tradesperson obviously has a higher minimum rate than a starting-off process worker, for example. So all of those rates, are defined there, and the, the annual wage review usually, not always, and it doesn't have to, usually increases those to what to some small degree. That's been the practice. 
employers who want nothing to apply, and I suppose my employers who like the Australian... Yeah, well, because this this particular uh, process exposes all the class structures within our society completely bare. You're dead right. It's where the pedal hits the metal. Yeah, that's right. You can can whinge all you like about wage suppression. The next question is, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, in this case, what the ACTU wants to do is get a 5% increase. What the employer, the most extreme employers want to do is is nothing for the lowest pay. The problem with these people who are the most extreme, the extremists, is that they have very... And our government, our federal government at the moment, seem to be blighted with simple-minded thinking. They don't understand the economy, do they? They don't even understand their own capitalist economy. Well, I profoundly disagree. Yeah, go on. I think they do. I mean, there'd be idiots who won't, you know, there's enough idiots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But overall, you see, what they understand about the essence of their role in government is to make this particular economy, it is a capitalist economy. Therefore, their role in government is to make sure everything that it can do to enhance profit-taking relative to investment can be done. And anything that is handed out that is in some way defined that we can accept as being positive in regards to, say, the social wage, all of that is done on the basis that it does not do so much harm to profit-taking. Yeah, yeah, uh, but, but, but if, if you... I do understand that. Yeah, I understand that, but the machine won't keep going if... They don't put some oil in. Well, exactly. They do put just enough oil. There is just enough. In this particular budget, the essence of this particular budget is that it will require a mini-budget because there is enough in this particular budget that is against the grain and the philosophy of how this government Oh. wants to manage the economy in the interests of the 1% to 10%. So at some point, you Boy. see, when they're re-elected, there will have to be a mini-budget. Well, and they've they only they've only outlined a budget that is uh, for a year. I mean, they've done gone no further than looking one year ahead in this budget. Well, there are some aspects of it that look into two to three years, and that's really all about enhancing the prospects for uh, profitability, but it is, it, you're dead right, it is a budget that's all about getting them re-elected. In fact, as I recall over my decades, in election years, that's what most budgets are about. You know, this one's more extreme than most, especially with the pork barrelling, with the infrastructure commitments and so on. Um, it's more extreme as an election year budget, but most election years, any government tries to run a, produce a budget that will help us get re-elected. Um, the question is, if Labor wins the election, with or without dependency upon the Greens and other cross-benchers, they will have to run a mini-budget to pursue their very modest program. Um, I think there's enough emerging now to show that this is not a Tweedledum and Tweedledee battle over living standards at the moment. Labor is in many ways 
inadequate, the program is inadequate, but it is distinctively better in important ways for several aspects of the social ways and for a different trajectory on tackling climate change. So these are the things that are going to unfold in the next few weeks. The annual wage review, so we've gone, we've hit, if we come back to that, that is going to, <laughs> what will be the character of the campaign? If you're proposing 5%, are you still going to pursue the dead-end strategy of economists at 10 paces <laughs> where the ACTU economist team gets up and argues the case in a co- economics language for the 5%, while an array of employer economists get up and say, no, it ought to be 0% or 2% or something in between, that, that, is, that is more likely to produce something close to 2%. If we ever have even a modest campaign that shows that the majority of working people support the objective of a 5% outcome, then we start to do two things. Firstly, the likelihood of getting closer to 5% instead of 2% is higher. And then secondly, more and more young workers who have never experienced an industrial campaign to raise lower wages, learn, start learning to do so. That the level of wages is defined by struggle. It's not defined by the beneficence of economists or the Fair Work Commission or uh, superficially generous employers. It's defined by their willingness have a go. Yeah, yeah, well, because um, we are running out of time and I know that you're, you've got lots more that you want to talk about, but I want to bring you back to what you were talking about in terms of the palace announcements regarding public education. Well, I think I'm, I'm sort of dipping the lid to Corinna from who's the president of the Australian Education Union. Their analysis of the budget, and she did get some good public airplay about this, Funding for public schools has been reduced in this budget. This is a cut to the social wage by $559 million over the next three years. God, and they've already cut it. That's right. At the same time, funding for private schools has been increased by $2.6 billion over almost the same period. Isn't that disgusting? It is disgusting. It is disgusting, and that's why if Labor and with or without the Greens is elected, then there will have to be a mini-budget, and we should be demanding it as the people. Uh, No funding has been allocated for capital works in public schools. No funding. just disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. This is in the context where just about every school needs capital work to deal with climate change effects like heating and, in some areas, flooding and bushfire, uh, dealing with bushfires. There is no additional funding for preschools. 
actually criminal. This is a criminal element of this budget. Unbelievable. So the Freudenberg, with butter not melting in his mouth, is perpetuating this gross assault on uh, Australians with children going and struggling to get through uh, their education. Here. They're actually attacking Australian children. That's what they're doing. It's a direct assault on the majority of Australian children. And, uh, you know, you can go on. Uh, the, the, the Australian Education Union is putting forward a four-point uh, platform uh, for what would have to be a mini-budget. And, and, of course, uh, that includes also a focus upon uh, uh, the reorganisation the, the re- 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 of um, vocational education funding um, and a, uh, a significant increase in the capital fund for schools to deal with. In, in fact, uh, enrolment growth is biggest in public schools at the moment. Enrolment growth is apparently in public schools is at record levels. Well, it's not very surprising. I mean, if uh, people are unable to, they've got precarious work. And I mean, it's very hard to be aspirational in terms of John Howard's aspirational. uh, You know, it's their choice if they want to send their children to private school. Bullshit. Yes, well. uh, I mean, if you've got a long memory, I remember. Yeah, you, you you remember what he said. So this is. So this is, you know, there's a lot at stake. In t- the, the, the big struggle is going to be over not just the standard of living, but the interaction between the standard of living and the quality of life. And uh, we've got to make sure that we win this phase of the struggle by defeating this government and then continuing. And then continuing with it. And if, if there is a change of government, in next year's annual wage review, with maybe a little practice in this year's, we have an escalated serious industrial campaign to maintain and lift the momentum for a better standard of living, starting with low-income Australians and their families. All right, Don, that's a good way to finish. Enjoy your uh, new start in a new, in a new land. <laughs> and we'll talk soon. Lots to learn about this whole new area. We'll be in touch. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, joining in again in a week or two. Bye-bye. And that's it for 3CR Breakfast, Solidarity Breakfast. Um, We uh, looked into a film that's coming out on 21st of April, uh, Ithaca. It's all about uh, Julian Assange and uh, the fight for his freedom. Uh, we went on to talk about the absurd uh, announcement by the uh, federal government's budget uh, spokesperson, just buy a house, he said to renters. We spoke to uh, Irini from uh, the, she's the secretary of the RAHU, the Renters and Housing Union. Um, and then we uh, moved on to Kevin's blistering look at the week. Following that, a chat with Don Sutherland, an outrageous discussion around uh, the cuts to public education in this country. They're just uh, 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 hounds, they are. They're hounds. Anyway, coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with some Vicar and Linda Bull. 
to um, raise our spirits. This uh, next song Linda's going to sing for you, she's a huge fan of reggae, listens to it every day. And uh, this song's about being unfaithful and hopefully not getting caught. <laughs> it's called We've Started a Fire. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.